before we begin the talk for a moment, let's cultivate our motivation. And whatever our motivation was for coming here today, let's build upon it and think that we will learn about ourselves today and especially learn how to activate our potential, how to overcome our foibles. And let's do this not simply for our own happiness, but we can see that we are part of the interdependent web of life on this planet. And so what we do as an individual affects others. And so as we work to subdue our own afflictions and make our lives very meaningful, that affects others in a really wonderful way. So seeing this potential widespread benefit from what we're doing, let's have that as part of our motivation. So with an attitude of love, wanting others to have happiness in its causes, and compassion, wanting them to be free of suffering in its causes, then let's listen to the Dharma and share it together today. Let's have that be our motivation. Well, don't believe everything you think. Or this will be our 36th month. Yeah. <laughs> Next month, we, because each month we do a verse, next month we'll finish the 37th verse. And then after that, uh, until January, on our uh, Sharing the Dharma Days, we'll have reviews of the different sections of the book so that people can put the what they've heard uh, together uh, to form a whole. So uh, the book is based on a poem uh, written in Tibet many centuries ago called The 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are beings who want to become fully awakened because they have very strong love and compassion and altruism towards other living beings. So the, the poem tells us how they practice, yeah, how they, and how they practice on a daily level. So in Buddhism, you know, our practice isn't just for Sunday mornings, it's for our entire life. And to, you know, when we hear teachings or we do meditation, to take what we learn into, a, into our daily life with us. And like I said in the motivation, we influence other people by the way we speak and act. So if we can learn how to be calmer people, more satisfied people, then that's certainly going to affect the people around us in a very good way. And, uh, you know, we may say, well, I'm only one individual, but one individual can stir up a lot of trouble. <laughs> Or one individual can bring about a lot of good feelings and peace. So we want to be the second kind of individual, don't we? Okay. So uh, the book also, when I, when I wrote it, uh, I had written, um, you know, just given a t uh, teachings on it. Somebody transcribed them and made it into a book. And then uh, that was published for free distribution in Singapore. And then before making it into a book that got published here in the US, uh, I sat around the kitchen table with a lot of people who told me stories from their life about how they used 
the verses uh, in this book to help them. So the book is filled with true stories. And, uh, and it was very touching. Just yesterday I got an email from a nun in Vietnam who um, received a copy of the English version of the original book that was for free distribution in Singapore. And she's saying, I found this book very interesting. Can I translate it into Vietnamese for my friends? Yeah? So it's very, um, it's very nice when you hear, especially people from all sorts of cultures, find meaning uh, in a text that was written, the poem was written centuries ago in Tibet. You know, but our minds are the same, and so the meaning applies to us no matter who we are, what culture we grow up in. So let me uh, read you verse 36. It's about mindfulness. I'll try and not get on my soapbox about mindfulness, but I can feel it coming. <laughs> Maybe before I read it. <laughs> Because uh, as soon as you uh, see a word in Time or Newsweek, you know that uh, probably most people don't understand it correctly. You know, if you see a foreign word, yeah, like karma or now mindfulness, you know, because there's this, I'll even take off my glasses, because now there's this mindfulness craze. So it's really wonderful that. Um, the mindfulness technique has been able to be extracted from Buddhism and modified um, to suit a wide variety of people. So uh, it kind of began with John Kabat-Zinn in his, um, what was his book, All Catastrophe Living? Yeah, and he, what? Full Catastrophe Living, yeah. And he, he is a doctor from uh, UMass, and he uses mindfulness together with yoga and other things uh, to help people who have chronic pain. And he's had wonderful results with it. And so he started out uh, by extracting mindfulness from the Buddhist perspective and, um, you know, and using it. In, in a certain, and because uh, in Buddhism there's many types of mindfulness, so he selected one type, as was taught by uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, uh, a Burmese master, and so he adapted it to help people be aware of their pain, to learn to sit with things, to regard their thoughts, regard their sensations, and know that they don't have to you know, push away unpleasant things and be reactive to everything. And that's helped a lot of people with chronic pain. And now it's moved into psychology and many therapists are using it. Um, I read that it's very good for obsessive compulsive disorder and other kinds of, um, you know, mental afflictions. And that's all very, very wonderful, and I, I really support that. I mean, anything that benefits others, of course, you know, is something good. The one thing I get on the soapbox about is if people start thinking that this particular kind of mindfulness that is now taught in a secular way, if that's all there is to Buddhism, that's what my soapbox is about, yeah. Because there's many types of mindfulness. Uh, like I said, uh, now it's being used by Kabat-Zinn and others uh, as just bare attention to uh, physical sensations and to mental thoughts and emotions, yeah. In Buddhism, when the Buddha taught the sutta, sutra on the um, four establishments of mindfulness, he ha there's four bases. You know, one is the body, one is feelings, so pleasant or happy, unhappy, and neutral feelings. The third one is the mind, how the mind operates, 
And the fourth is phenomena, which has a lot to do with different mental factors or different states of mind. So this is a very profound practice that you do over a lifetime uh, to develop single-pointedness and to develop wisdom. It, it's uh, quite a penetrating practice. Yeah, there's a lot more to it. In fact, I taught it here at the Abbey for how long? Yeah, it was well over a year. Yeah, all the videos are on the, the website. But, um, yeah, and so that's how mindfulness is usually taught. So that's a little bit different than the secular mindfulness that's used today. Uh, that's taught by people who may or may not be Buddhist. Okay, so I think it's important to always keep in your mind that the Buddhist perspective on these things is much deeper, much more profound. And also the teachings are given for a different purpose. Okay, in the secular realm, it's given to help people with particular problems they have right now. In the Buddhist realm, the teachings are given to, uh, to lead us to liberation from the cycle of constantly recurring problems. And when done with an altruistic intention, uh, the mindfulness practices uh, can lead us you know, on the path to full awakening. So the motivation is completely different, and as a result, the result is of doing the practice is different. So I just think it's really important for people to be aware of this. And not get the things confused, yeah. And also, as people who are for, who are mindfulness teachers in a secular way, not to present themselves as Buddhist teachers, yeah. Um, I talked to a friend of mine in in Singapore, who is uh, she's Buddhist, but she's teaching mindfulness in a secular way in her in her workplace. She works in the corporate world, and. Uh, you know, we were talking about how people get this confusion of mindfulness and Buddhism happening, and both of us agreed that it was really important to uh, separate secular mindfulness and Buddhist mindfulness. And my reason was just as I explained to you, so that people don't think that that's all there is to Buddhism is, you know, watching your breath and calming your mind. That it's something very, a very profound system that leads to very profound mental transformation uh, and spiritual goals. She wanted, she thought it was good to separate the two because many people in her corporation were not Buddhists. And if they thought that the mindfulness was Buddhism, they wouldn't come to the course and they wouldn't benefit from it. And I said, you're absolutely right, you know, because we want people to benefit from this. This technique is not specifically Buddhist. It can be used in a broad, secular way. So, you know, she, we, she and I were coming at it from different perspectives, but we both agreed that uh, it was good that, that people learn the difference between these yeah, and use each one in its um, respective realm know, in a suitable way. So here, uh, we're going to be talking about Buddhist mindfulness. I will read the verse. Um, <laughs> we'll get to it. Uh, but even within Buddhism, there's many different ways of talking about mindfulness. So we'll just kind of talk about it uh, briefly. In some ways, we don't have so much time. Okay, so the verse reads, in brief, in other words, because he's coming, this is the 36th verse of the 37 verse poem. Okay, so he says in brief as a summary for everything he said before. Whatever you are doing, ask yourself, what's the state of my mind? With constant mindfulness and introspective awareness, accomplish others' good. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. Okay, so two things here. You know, in brief, whatever you are doing, so whether we are 
sitting, standing, lying down, walking, whatever we're doing, okay, whether we're with people we like or people we don't like or whether we're alone, uh, whether we're at work, whether with our, uh, we're at home, uh, lying on the beach, climbing mountains, in the bathroom, everything we're doing, ask yourself, what's the state of my mind? Okay. So, why, why, you know, it's to keep track of what's going on in our mind. What are our thoughts? What are our feelings? Because if we aren't aware of what our thoughts and feelings are, then they just, you know, they run the show and we operate on uh, automatic. Yeah. And you can see this. Uh, you know, probably most of you drive to work. Are you aware of what your thoughts are from the time you get in the car till the time you arrive at your job? If somebody said to you each day, what were you thinking about in the car? Could you tell them? Yeah? Maybe a few days we could say a little, like if we were thinking angry thoughts about somebody at home you know, or dreading a meeting at our workplace. But most days, there were thoughts, there were emotions. These are affecting us, but we aren't even aware of them because we're out of touch with ourselves. Yeah, we're so focused on outside things, you know, sight, sound, smells, taste, touch. We're so focused on what other people are doing that we aren't even aware of what we're thinking and feeling. And we readily impute motivations on others and you know, and diagnose them psychologically, even though we aren't therapists. But we're out of touch with what we're thinking and feeling. Yeah? So have you ever been in the situation where you're saying something to somebody and one part of your mind is saying, why am I saying this? This, this is not the right thing to be saying right now. Why am I saying this? And you keep talking. <laughs> have you had that happen to you? Plenty, I think. All of us have had that happen. Yeah? Why? Why? How do we get ourselves in that situation? Well, because we weren't aware of what our motivation was. We weren't aware of our thoughts, of our emotions. And yet they were operating and they were behind this and they were the ones that are, you know, motivating us for what we're saying to come out of our mouth even though we don't want to be saying it. Okay, I mean, I remember times where I'm just saying, children, shut up, just keep your mouth closed, and I keep on talking. Yeah? Or have you ever been somewhere or been involved in something and say, how did I get myself in this mess? Yeah? Like, all of a sudden, you're somewhere doing who knows what, and you're going, this isn't what I should be doing. This is a big mess. How did I get here? Yeah, well, because there were thoughts and feelings going on inside of us, and we just operated on automatic without being aware of what they were. And then, all of a sudden, you find yourself somewhere. You know, I won't mention some of the examples I've heard what people were doing. Maybe I should. <laughs> Maybe some of you wouldn't like it. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. One, one person told me he, he went out to celebrate his birthday and got drunk and woke up the next morning in the house of a person he didn't even know. Yeah. Or you wake up in the bed of somebody that you don't even know. And I was like, how did I get here? Well, there's causes and conditions. And, you know, and our thoughts and emotions played one, some factor in that. Okay? So, uh, if we can be aware of what is the state of our mind, we can prevent creating a lot of messes for ourselves and others. And instead, we can use our body and speech to create a lot of happiness for the people around us. Yeah. I mean, we have a perfect example now of somebody who has no control over their speech. Yeah. And the words, just the thoughts and emotions just come out. And, yeah. And we can see how that influences people. So, you know, we need to be quite careful. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, to be aware. Because if there's anger in our mind, what's going to come out of our mouth? It's not going to be praise for somebody. <laughs> yeah? It's going to be who knows what. Yeah? If, if we are aware of our state of mind, yeah, if we notice there's anger there, then we know, oh, I have to apply one of the uh, antidotes to anger. And... Uh, the whole preceding part of the book, as well as um, His Holiness's book, Healing Anger, and my book, um, Working with Anger, they, taught, they tell you lots of ways to see situations in order to not suppress the anger, because suppressing anger doesn't do any good, but to look at the situation from a different way so that we don't get angry to start with. Yeah, so if we notice anger in our mind, then we pull out one of the books, we sit down, we try and, you know, steer our mind so we can look at a situation in a different way. And in that way, the anger settle, you know, it evaporates by itself. And then we can deal with the situation in a constructive way that will bring about harmony and cooperation. Okay, and uh, we similarly need to be aware of not just our emotions, but our thoughts. Because behind our emotions, there's always thoughts. There's always a story we're telling ourselves. Yeah, if we're being exceptionally greedy, or even a little bit greedy, there are the thoughts in our mind, the story in our mind that says, I need this, yeah, I want this, that means I need it, actually, it doesn't, but this is the way we think, yeah, I deserve to have it, I should have it, this other person has it, but I should have it, I wanted to, I deserve to be happy, and anyway, if I took it from this other person, they have so many things they're not even going to notice it. And if I took this thing from my company, my company's rich. You know, they, again, they won't even notice it. So, and anyway, they don't pay me what they should pay me. I deserve more for, for what I work. So my taking this is actually totally 100% justified. Yeah? And then maybe we take something from our workplace that hasn't been freely offered to us, and we consider it ours. Yeah, or we borrow something from somebody and we don't return it. Interesting to look around your house and see what you have that belongs to other people. Or see what's in your wallet that you borrowed from other people and didn't return. It's very interesting, you know, when we start to look back and clean up our lives. But you see, there was this whole story 
that justified our taking something that wasn't ours. In a similar way, when we're upset, there's a whole story behind it. You know, this person, uh, you know, what did they do today? They, they didn't say good morning in a nice voice. You know, they said good morning. I deserve good morning. I don't deserve good morning. I'm sure they don't like me. In fact, they're probably out to get me. I know that they're talking badly about me at the workplace. Or I know my spouse is, you know, they must be seeing somebody else. I can tell by the way they said good morning. Yeah. And we dream up all sorts of scenes with our thoughts. And then, of course, anger comes, jealousy comes. We aren't mindful. It comes out of our mouth. It comes in our actions. And you get all the soap operas starring me. Yeah, who needs to watch soap operas in the afternoon? Yeah, we make our own life into a soap opera. Okay, so <laughs> interesting expression, soap opera, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, so this is what happens when we aren't aware of our thoughts. So that's why he's saying, you know, whatever you're doing, be aware, what is the state of my mind? Yeah? If I'm in a peaceful, happy state of mind, then let's share that with others. And let's use the time to point out to other people what they're good at and tell them what we appreciate about them and thank them for what they've done to help us. Yeah. Do we take time to do that? Maybe with the person in the, in the market, but do we ever thank our family? Yeah? Or do we just take them for granted and point out what's wrong? It's good. Try thanking your family. Try pointing out uh, to your kids and your spouse and your parents and even your dog what you love about them. You know, people need good feedback. Yeah, we need to know what we're doing that other people appreciate. And it feels really good when we can be that person who tells others what we appreciate about them. Doesn't take very much energy. Yeah, we, we don't have to, to win the Olympics and have that kind of energy. But sometimes moving our mouth takes more energy than swimming in the Olympics. Yeah. You mean I have to say something nice about someone? I'm too lazy. Yeah. They didn't deserve it because they did all these other things. But, you know, rather than keep a list of all the other things they did, let's point out the things that we appreciate. It's remarkable how relationships can transform if we do that. Okay? So it says here, with constant mindfulness and mental uh, and, and uh, introspective awareness, Okay? So mindfulness and introspective awareness are two mental factors that go very closely together. They're, they're very good friends and complement each other very well. Mindfulness, from a Buddhist perspective, it's the same word as memory or to remember. So what it means is re we remember our values, we remember our principles, we remember our ethical standards and ethical precepts. We have these things in our mind all the time. And then that enables us, if they're in our mind, we, it's not that we're reciting them to ourselves all the time, but we're aware of them, then that enables us with introspective awareness to look at what we're saying and doing and thinking and feeling 
and see if it's in, in accord with our values, our principles, our precepts, the kind of person we want to be in the world. Okay? So it's very, very effective, you know, to remember, you know, first of all, to think about these things and set our priorities well, then to keep them in mind throughout the day and whatever we're doing, checking and seeing if we're acting in accordance with them. And if we are, fantastic. Pat yourself on the back. I know as you age it's harder to reach your back, but we can do it. Okay? Um, yeah, so, so rejoice. And if we notice a, a mental state that is problematic, that's looking at something from a very extreme viewpoint or a very negative way or we're being uh, judgmental of other people or imputing motivations on them that they may not have, then to, to note that and step back and say, ah, I have to reorient my, my mind to what is good and return my mind to my values and principles and precepts and so on. Yeah? So this kind of thing helps us to, uh, oh boy, we avoid so many problems when we can do this well. And we're able to really spread a lot of good and happiness when we can do it. Okay? Because, he's saying, with constant mindfulness and introspective awareness, what are we to do by monitoring our body, speech, and mind? Accomplish others' good. Work for the benefit of others. Do what is helpful to other living beings. Okay? So if, you know, and then this is the practice of bodhisattvas. So remember, bodhisattvas are those who really cherish others. Yeah? And they cherish everybody equally. Yeah? They don't cherish somebody because that person's nice to them, or that person's related to them, or that person gives them gifts, or that person praises them. Bodhisattvas cherish everybody equally, simply because they're a living being. Yeah? So all these other discriminations are really secondary. But here's somebody who's a living being, who wants happiness, who doesn't want suffering. And if you take a long-term view, you know, at some time or another in this life or previous lives, this person has been kind to me. And I've received a lot of kindness from every living being. So I want to repay that kindness. I want to put some good energy in the world, especially now. You know, we, every one of us needs to be responsible and put some good energy into our world. And we all do it in our own little you know, circle of the people that we see on a daily basis. Yeah, so we accomplish others' good. So this is by doing and saying things directly to individuals. We accomplish their good, even by just small actions. Yeah, just asking somebody if they need help or staying after work five or ten minutes to help somebody finish something up, or taking over another person's task when they don't feel well. Yeah. Just, we can do all sorts of kind things. We don't have to be dramatic about it and, you know, I'm Mother Teresa, and I can stand all these people who are, you know, filthy and dying. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe that's not our way of, of helping people. It's Mother Teresa's way of helping people, which is very admirable. 
But maybe our way of helping people is creating a good atmosphere at work. Yeah? Is maybe bringing in some treats for everybody in the place you work. And not just leaving them by the coffee machine, but go around to everybody's desk and offer them personally some cookies. This makes huge differences, you know? In your working, somebody coming personally and offering you something. Yeah? So there's all sorts of small ways, let alone medium and bigger ways, to be of benefit in our world that don't require a lot of effort. And I think especially towards children, you know, to encourage children's good qualities. Yes, we have to discipline them, but they need discipline that knows that we love them while we're disciplining them. I saw this uh, in a really wonderful way when I was staying with one Asian family a number of years ago. Because in my family, when we were kids and we got disciplined, if we were bad, the message was, we don't love you. You know, we're withdrawing our love, we yell and scream until you kids act properly. Anyway. (laughs) But what I saw in this Asian family I was working at the computer in in the dining room, and I heard the father scold his child, his child, maybe four or five years old, small child. The father scolded him for something he had done. And then as the child left the room, you know, and was walking into where I was, the father came behind him and picked him up and held him and hugged him. And I thought, wow, you know, your discipline for the action, but your parents still love you. I thought, wow, imagine what that does. Yeah? So these kinds of things, you know, uh, some of you have kids, some of you have grandkids to be able to express affection for the person, but speak about the action and discourage the action without telling the person that they're a lousy human being. Okay? So, uh, accomplish others' good. There's so many ways to do it. Yeah? So many ways. And we don't have to invent ways. And I'm not talking here about whitewashing things or becoming a people pleaser, you know. Did you notice I brought in homemade chocolate cookies to the office and gave them to each one of you? Did you notice? Did you notice? You all should be nice to me now. No, not with that kind of motivation. Okay? Not trying to people be a people pleaser so that other people like us. But do what we do as just a natural expression of our appreciation for human, other human beings and the fact that we live in an interdependent world and that everybody's important. Yeah. And we can't kick anybody out because where are they going to go? We always live in relationship to each and every sentient being. Even you go to the top of a mountain, we're always in relationship to everybody. So let's find, you know, get in touch with our kind heart and show this. Okay? So I thought to, to read you uh, a couple of the stories that, that people told me about this verse. How this verse helped them. Okay. So this story is called, What is the State of My Mind? So, I won't tell you where it happened. One day before teachings, we Dharma students were standing around waiting for our Dharma teacher to come and teach us. She was a little late. (laughs) 
When she walked in, she looked at us and asked, what is the state of your mind? What are you doing with the time that you're standing here waiting for me? I was blunt and impish, as usual, and said, oh, just standing around. <laughs> However, someone in the community adopted the phrase, and whenever he saw something he wanted to point out, he said, what is the state of your mind? I'd hear that and think, that is not what the verse says. The verse says, what is the state of my mind? So why are you pointing the finger at me when you're supposed to be looking at your own mind? <laughs> I thought this way every time he said it until I realized that maybe I should read the verse myself and ask myself, what's the state of my mind? <laughs> Instead of getting irritated by the other person. It happens when we live together in community that someone says something we don't like. Imagine that. It happens in families too, doesn't it? And workplaces, everywhere. Nevertheless, such occurrences can be useful if we just let go of whatever meaning our opinionated mind was projecting onto it and instead take the essence and apply it to our mind. Okay, so what is the state of my mind, not your mind? Okay, here's a second one. It's called Coming Back to the Present and to Bodhicitta. So transforming adversity into joy and courage, Geshe Champa Tekchok's commentary on the 37 practices of bodhisattvas, which is downstairs, by the way, was a pivotal book for me in my Dharma practice. I read and reread it during a one-month retreat, and it really spoke to me. At the end of a three-month retreat at Shravasti Abbey, we participants read the 37 practices of bodhisattvas out loud together, and then shared stories about how we applied these practices to our life. That's what I was mentioning this morning. This inspired us to print out the verses on little cards that we decorated and to put them in different places around the abbey, on the fence, in the truck, on the stairway, all over so that we would be reminded of them. So this happened many years ago maybe in like 06, yeah, so 10 years ago. So two people took it upon themselves. They printed out the 37 verses. One of them was a, a young man, and he, he decorated the cards, you know, with colors, and, and then laminated them and posted them all around the abbey. Um, he, a few of them are still here 10 years later that haven't gotten beaten up too badly by the weather. But maybe we should put them up again, yeah? I mean, we have to make new ones because all the old ones just fell apart. But it was, it was really a nice thing, you know, you saw them, you had to stop and, and, and think. Sometimes I talk to myself saying, Kevin, what's going on? I may do this in the garden while working on the computer or wherever, checking in on myself. What are you thinking? I say it gently, not harshly. So this is a big trick. Yeah, it's not what's going on in my mind. <laughs> oh, again. It's, you know, just a gentle, curious, what's going on in my mind? You know, how am I feeling? Okay, I say it gently, not harshly. Where is your mind now? What's going on? How can I come back to the present moment? How can I come back to bodhicitta? to this altruistic intention. I tune in to see if my mind is disturbed by afflictions or feeling joyful by what has transpired during the day. The mental factors of mindfulness and introspective awareness are crucial when I ask myself, how do I work with what's in front of me now? And how can I remember to come back to the present moment when I veer off into the gutter or the hedges. 
For me, this involves bringing my mind and heart back to the bodhicitta motivation, going beyond the wish for my own happiness, and seeing that everywhere I go, the path is lined with sentient beings. So everywhere we go, there's other living beings. Where there's other living beings, there's the opportunity to create merit, to spread happiness and goodness in the world. Okay, so we have a few minutes for questions or comments. This is your time. <laughs> yes. When I'm um, working with my mind, I'm, I'm starting to be able to observe it accurately. I think one thing, I have a ruminating mind, mm-hmm. and I worry about things. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware that the thought behind that is that somehow that makes me safer, like to recognize it, name it. You know, and I realize that there's an error in that. And then I get stuck. It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I often wish I had like a wise man in my living room that I could go and say, now what do I do with this? <laughs> Resources for particularly worrying, yeah, and you're worrying about the future, yeah. Okay. Anybody else have this problem? <laughs> yeah. Our mind spins about the, what happens if this? What happens? If this, what happens if that? What happens in this? And what this? And what this? And we drive ourselves totally nutty. What's interesting is you hit the nail on the head when you said somehow ruminating and worrying, some part of our mind thinks that we'll be safer if we worry. Yeah. So if we worry, we will cover all the bases of what could possibly happen, and that might make it so that none of them happen. That's, that's the way the worrying mind thinks, isn't it? Does that, is that reasonable? No. You know, just worrying about it is not going to protect us from that thing happening. Yeah. In fact, I think sometimes it makes it more likely for that thing to happen because we're gearing all of our energies towards it happening. Yeah. So, um, okay a couple of things about worrying. One is, what I find very helpful, is to, to stop and remember a verse that Shanti Devi, he's an 8th century um, Indian sage, and he said something, I'm paraphrasing, if you can do something about a situation, no need to get upset about it. If you can't do anything about it, also no need to get upset. So if we change it, you know, if there's something that you can do about the situation, changing some of the factors, then do that and don't worry. If there's nothing you can do because the situation's completely out of your hands, also don't worry. Because it doesn't do anything. Okay? So I remember that. That's one thing. Maybe you need to take one of those little talking dolls, and we'll program her uh, so you can keep her in your living room. Dress her up like a nun and push a button. She'll come in and give you advice. <laughs> yeah. That would be a new thing, isn't it? <laughs> I worry today. What do I say? Push the button. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> then Chatty Tenzin says. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's one. Okay. Second thing is, I say to myself, uh, "What's the worst thing that could happen?" And then I think about that one, and then I say, "Well, what resources?" 
do I have if that happens? Well, first of all, before I say that, as I say to myself, how likely is that to happen? You know, like, I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to be out on the street by Thursday morning. How likely is that to happen? Mm, not very. I still have my job. I still have my home. You know. So you ask yourself, how likely is that to happen? Then you say, even if it did happen, what resources do I have to handle it? So what resources are there in the community? Maybe social services or amongst my friends. And what resources do I have inside? to draw upon myself to make my own mind steady and calm in a difficult situation. And then I think about the resources there are in the community with my friends inside myself. And I realize that even if this thing happened, it's not going to be the end of the world. There's always something I can do in a creative way to deal with the situation. Hmm? Okay? So I think that. Then, if you're worried about your children, are, you, are your worries often about your children? No. Okay. Uh, but some people worry a lot about their kids. Yeah. I came uh, from a family in which if I was supposed to be home at 12 o'clock, if I was home by 12.01, my mother would be on the phone with the police saying her daughter's been kidnapped or killed in a car accident or something. You know, I lived with a, a mother that worried incredibly. Please don't burden your kids with that if you're a parent. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible burden for the child. Um, as parents, teach your kids good skills. Yeah, when they're young, teach them good skills and then trust them. And, you know, they have to learn sometimes by their own mistakes, but worrying about them and being a helicopter over them does not do much good. Okay, so that's, that's something I would, would recommend. Okay? So now the task is to remember them and to apply them. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Yeah, I was thinking that um, you talk about uh, being aware and being aware of your feelings, that sometimes we ignore them or we avoid them somehow. Mm -hmm. My problem is I'm too aware of them and I get stuck in them. Mm. Yeah. This is where, uh, you know, what to do if we're aware of our feelings, but then we get stuck in them. And what she was saying, ruminate. We spin around them, you know. And we, you know, do the, we review the scene that the person, you know, where they shouted at us or cheated us or whatever. So one thing is to be aware that we're ruminating and press the pause button because we've been through those videos enough times. We know the ending. We know the plot. You know, um, it's boring already, except for the fact that it's our problem. That makes it really interesting. So, uh, you know, if it's somebody else's problem, it's really not very interesting, is it? I mean, if you're on the phone with somebody who is telling, who's ruminating about their problem and going on and on and on about it, it's like. You know, get me off the phone already. So, it's very good if you're ruminating about your problem, think of somebody else's problem and make yourself ruminate about it. <laughs> and you get bored very easily. <laughs> and then you say, you know, my problem is the same way. Yeah. It's boring already. Yeah. So that, that's, that's one way to, 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 to deal with it. A second way is in the Buddha's teachings, you know, the first, the first 35 verses of the book, is he is teaching us the ways to deal with different situations and different mental states. 
Okay? So if somebody criticizes you and, ups and you're upset, think like this. If somebody steals your stuff, think like this. Yeah? If you're really upset about something that just happened, think like this. Yeah? So it gives us all sorts of good advice on how to think in different situations. Yeah. Now, the thing is that the ways to think that are the that give us a different perspective and therefore enable us to drop the disturbing emotions, these ways of thinking are the exact opposite of how we are thinking. So our mind has a little bit of resistance to them, okay, to say it mildly. <laughs> okay. Um, let, let me read you a couple of the verses so you can see the, the resistance. If someone out of strong desire steals all your wealth or has it stolen, dedicate to him your body possessions and your verse to past, present, and future. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. Somebody stole my stuff and I'm supposed to give them my possessions and my body and my virtue. I want to call the police. But what do we need to do at that moment? Instead of being furious, instead of being possessive, we need to just say, it's gone, I give it to them. I make charity. Yeah? Material possessions, money, come, come, go, go. Yeah? It's gone, I give it as a gift. Yeah? And make your mind at ease about it. Even if someone broadcasts all kinds of unpleasant remarks about you throughout the 3,000 worlds, in return, with a loving mind, speak of his good qualities. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. See, I told you, it's the opposite of what we want to do. Somebody just broadcast all kinds of lies about me throughout, I mean, it's the 3,000 worlds much further than, you know, this planet. And I'm supposed to, with a loving mind, speak of this beep, beep, beeps, good qualities? Well, try it. Yeah, they spoke bad words about me. Yeah, does, yeah, is it true what they said? Well, if it's true, I better own it. If it's not true, then I can explain to people why it's not true. In either case, I don't need to be furious about it. And this person is clearly suffering. They're clearly miserable. And, you know, can I wish them well? They must have some good qualities in there. Can I wish them well? Can I reach out to them in some way? Okay, so there's, the Buddha's teachings are full of ways for how to handle these afflictive emotions that we ruminate on and that drive us nutty. Yeah? So we have to learn those methods and then practice them. Not just practicing them once, but constantly, again and again and again, so that we really transform the way we approach situations in life. So then what does Buddhism teach about being extremely sensitive? It means, when we're extremely sensitive, it means we have self-centeredness in it. Now, when some people are, are uh, very sensitive in productive ways, uh, uh, okay. able to see, enter into the suffering of other people. Uh-huh. But we can be sensitive and, and, you know, know somebody's suffering without getting distressed ourselves. Yeah. If we see their suffering and respond with compassion, the focus is on the person who's suffering. If we see somebody suffering 
and respond with feeling despair ourselves, the focus has turned back to us. We're no longer on the other. We have to turn the focus back on the other and realize that problems come about due to, and suffering comes about due to causes and conditions, and causes and conditions can be changed, and so we do what we can to change them. But feeling personal distress is, we've forgotten about the other person at that point. We're back-centered on ourself. Okay? Okay, so let's um, dedicate our merit. Precious body mind, not yet born, arise and 